Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Practicing the Way Vision Series. Hey, um, welcome. My name is John Mark. I'm a follower of Jesus and a Star Wars fan in that order. And really happy that you're here. Welcome to Bridgetown Church. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Really looking forward to the teaching tonight. Matthew chapter 11. Tonight we come to the end of a three-month long vision series on practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. I, for one, feel like we're on the cusp of a whole new season in the life of Bridgetown Church. But to wrap up, I want to talk about something that has the potential to sabotage and undermine and derail the whole vision. And hint, it's not what you think. To start off, let's read from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, a teaching of the rabbi that we know as Jesus of Nazareth. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is an invitation for all the tired, the burned out, the worn down, for the stressed out, the over busy, all of you who are late on your Christmas shopping. Anybody like that in here? Yep, why are you excited about that? It's 2016, we live in the city, most of us have a smartphone. Is there anybody not like that in here? In the modern world, the vast majority of us live with a low-grade fatigue and anxiety that rarely, if ever, goes away. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage from Matthew in the message. Quote, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. And then I love this line. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is an invitation to what I call an unhurried life where it feels good in the marrow of your bones to wake up in the morning, stare down another day, and follow Jesus. But how many of you, you read this, and if you're honest with yourself, if you and I were to sit down for coffee and you were to shoot straight with me, how many of you would say, well, to be honest, I can't relate to that. I think I follow Jesus, I, I, I'm here, I think of myself in that way, but to be honest, I am tired, I am worn out, and I am kind of burned out on religion. If that's you, if that's your felt experience of discipleship to Jesus and spirituality, then you are not alone. People all around you to your right and left feel the exact same way. I know because I did for years and years. I would read this passage and I would think, man, that sounds great, and I can't relate to it at all. Now, I have good news for you. This passage has the potential to unlock a whole new dimension in your discipleship to Jesus. 
If you have been around um, the church for any length of time, if you grew up in the church or just have been around for a year or two, the odds are you already know this passage. It's practically a cliche, but hidden in plain sight in this passage is what the philosopher Dallas Willard called the secret of the easy yoke. I love that, the secret of the easy yoke. He writes this, in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, et cetera, et cetera, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It is a strategy bound to fail. What he's saying here is simple but profound, and here's my paraphrase from early on in the series, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Let me say that out loud again. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is just that. It is a way of life. It's not just a set of ideas or what we call theology or a list of do's and don'ts, or what we call ethics. It is a way of life. Often, you know, in the church, in particular in a Western kind of American culture, we say a ton about theology and ethics, but little or nothing about lifestyle. But lifestyle is where the money is. That's what Jesus is getting at with this odd imagery of a yoke, which is a first century agrarian metaphor, it's lost on most of us in 2016 in an urban context. Frederick Dale Bruner, who's one of the top scholars in the world in the Gospel of Matthew, he writes this, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, it's a way of saying his way of life, his set of teachings, will develop us in a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. There is an emotional weight to life. Would you agree with that? If not, you're either like still really young or like <laughs> rich or something. I don't know. Let's have coffee and tell me how you do it. There's an emotional weight. And if you're thinking, oh, I know, I'm a freshman in college, it's so crazy, I can't wait till I graduate, and then life is easy. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. Like, that, you're at the easy part. Like, welcome. That's, you're like, really? Yes, really. The old, I'm, I'm in my mid-30s now, and every year I feel more weight, more responsibility, more load on my back. I, I'm hope, hoping that at some point it starts to go in the opposite direction. I don't know, is it 40, is it 50, is it 90? I'm not sure. But the older you get, the more responsibility that you carry. 
school and then a job and then a career and then maybe a mortgage, then maybe a spouse, then maybe you have a family and more, more, more. There is an emotional weight to life. And often discipleship, if we're honest, discipleship to Jesus just feels like another weight on top of all the others. I'm already tired, I'm working 50 hours a week, I'm in grad school, I have a you know, fiance, whatever, I'm already way over busy, I don't have good time on the weekend, and now you're saying I need to also read my Bible every single day and pray and live in community and share a meal and come to church every week, and like, it just feels like oh, a whole other thing. But pay close attention to Jesus' imagery. A yoke was almost always used to tie together two oxen or two donkeys or something like that in order to carry a load, a cart or a plow in a field. Jesus is essentially saying, hey, come along. I'm here. I have a yoke. You come alongside me. Match your pace of life to mine. Let me carry most of the weight. Let me do all the heavy lifting. You just tuck in here right next to me and it will be easy. The hardest way to follow Jesus is to live like all the other people in your neighborhood, apartment complex, your dorm, your school, your workplace, not really change your time, your schedule, your money, all of that, and just try to add in on top of all of that discipleship to Jesus and cram it in in every little nook or cranny. That is so hard, it's next to impossible. Failure is on the horizon. The easiest way to follow Jesus is to radically alter your whole lifestyle and take the pattern set by Jesus' lifestyle and say, I wanna live like that. Not just in the decision to love my enemy, but in like my morning routine and my weekly rhythm and how I live in community. When you adopt the lifestyle of Jesus, then the life of Jesus is the natural byproduct, the secret of the easy yoke. Are we tracking? Yeah, yeah? okay, now, I hear that and I'm a bit of a skeptic, so I hear, well, great. I mean, that's, yes, that sounds great. Sign me up. There's just one major problem. To take up the easy yoke, that means I would need to slow down. And I, am I alone in that? Because I know about Jesus' pace of life, and I know about mine, and they're very different. If there's anything you pick up from reading the four Gospels in the New Testament, it's that Jesus was pretty much never in a hurry. His life was full, he's all over the map, yet he would regularly kind of sneak away and go rest and pray and Sabbath, but he was never really in a rush, never in a hurry. He would stop, interruption after interruption. People would get really like frustrated with Jesus. Like why you're like praying for that woman? She's dying. Well, so is this other woman. And like people would get frustrated with Jesus because he was just so in the moment. John Ortberg, um, I don't know if you've read his work, he's a pastor and writer down in California who was mentored by my hero, Dallas Willard, who we just quoted, for 20-some years. And he tells this great story about calling up Willard one day, and this was, I think, in the 90s, and Ortberg was a teaching pastor at Willow Creek, which was essentially the most influential church in the world at that time, and he's a famous Bible teacher known all over America, and he's just this amazing, mature dude. But he, he tells a story, he says, I, I, you know, I call up Willard, and I'm at this spot where I just feel stuck in my discipleship to Jesus. And yes, I'm a Bible teacher and all that stuff, but I just feel stuck and I feel like I'm not where I want to be. And so he calls up Willard and he says, all right, what do I need to do? And he said there was a long silence on the other end of the line because with Willard, there was always a long, awkward silence on the other end of the line. And then Willard said this. This is from a phone conversation between Willard and Ortberg. He said this, quote, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. 
You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. How good is that? So Ortberg, you know, notepad out, he writes that down. He's like, that is tweet worthy. Willard, you don't even know what that is, but this is in the 90s. There was no Twitter, but whatever. Like, that's great. Writes it down, takes a deep breath. Wow, okay, profound. What's next? What else? And he said there was another long, awkward silence on the other end. And then Willard said, there is nothing else. That's it. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You know, if somebody were to ask you, hey, in the Western secular world, in a progressive city like Portland, what is the greatest challenge in your spiritual life? What would you say? Most of us, I don't know, I guess would say secularism or internet pornography or ISIS or liberal theology or racial tension or I don't know, you fill in the blank. My guess is that very few of us would say hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. But remember that Satan does not, and we believe here that there is evil that is personified, right? Satan does not always show up as a demon with a pitchfork in a cartoon or on SNL. He shows up as an addiction to the dopamine rush that is your iPhone, or as another hour at the office on the weekend, or as commitment on top of commitment on top of commitment, or as a life of speed, go, go, go. The famous psychologist Carl Jung, who developed the idea of introverts and extroverts, it's him, his work was used to make the Myers-Briggs test, INTJ, anybody? Nope. Um, okay, we're weird. He has this great line, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. I love that. When I was running this vision series by my psychologist, who is also a PhD, brilliant, Jesus, Quaker, just great dude. And um, I was getting his you know, feedback, critique, input, all of that, and he was, a, he was a fan. But the one thing he said over and over, I think three or four times, he said the number one problem you will face is time. Because what he does for a living help people grow, help people mature. And he said, people are just too busy to live emotionally healthy, spiritually rich, and vibrant lives. Michael Zigarelli from the Charleston University School of Business did a survey recently of 20,000 Christians in the US. And he identified busyness as the major distraction from life with God. Listen to his summary and kind of his hypothesis from his massive survey. He writes this, it may be the case that one, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. You don't laugh because you're like, dang. And pastors, by the way, are the worst. He rated pastors right up there with doctors and lawyers for being caught up in a culture of speed. I mean, not me, other pastors. <laughs> Have a look at this from Ronald Rollheiser. Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. 
Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. I can't help but wonder if Jesus would say to our entire generation in the U.S. what he said to Martha, that famous line in that classic story, you are worried and upset about many things. You're worried. You're upset about many things. You're in the kitchen and dinner's great and yeah, I'm hungry and thank you, but here's Mary sitting at my feet. That is the way of a disciple. The need of the hour is for what Pete Scazzaro, the author of The Emotionally Healthy Church that's really played a role in our church, he calls it a slow down spirituality, a slow down spirituality. We all know that our world has sped up to a frenetic pace, a little bit of history lesson to nerd out on you. Ironically, the clock, I did not know this until recently, the clock was invented by monks to organize the monastery around fixed hour prayer. Most historians point to the year 1370 as a turning point in human history. That's when the first public clock was erected in Cologne, Germany, and it marked a shift in Western European consciousness in our relationship to time. Before that, time was natural, meaning it was set by the rotation of the earth on its axis and the four seasons and day and night, but the clock created artificial time and with it the slog of the nine to five and a whole bunch else. Then in 1879, you have Edison and the light bulb, which cut our sleep way back. The average American 150 years ago used to sleep 11 hours a night. And it, it, yep. Well, think about it. You're like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. But the sun goes down. We live in the north. We live in the winter. There's like 15 hours. You have nothing to do, right, but a candle or whatever that you made in the barn or something horrible, you know? Not like a candle from Schoolhouse Electric for $97. Not that kind of a candle, you know? <laughs> then about a century ago, technology started to change our relationship to time with so-called labor-saving devices, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, you know, we used to have to chop wood, apparently, so I'm told. I missed it. Now we, like, push a button on the wall, or if you're rich, like an app on your phone, and, like, just there's a mystery. Heat just comes up from... The floor is like, where does the heat come from? I don't, e I don't even know where the heat comes from, but it comes up from the floor. <laughs> we used to have to walk everywhere or ride on this gross, smelly animal called a horse. Uh, now we like drive or cycle. We used to have to write a letter by hand. Like people used to use this appendage to write with. It's a very long time ago if you're under the age of 25. Now we have Siri or Microsoft Word or whatever. Yet in spite of our dishwasher, if you have one, I don't, but I have three children, and, um, <laughs> and our laundry machine and a toaster and a microwave and our phone and all of that, most of us feel like we have less time, not more. So the question is, where did all that time go? Because technology really does cut back on time, and the answer is we just spent it on something else. In the 1960s, all the futurists, from sci-fi writers to political theorists, thought that by now we would all be working fewer hours. There's a famous Senate subcommittee from 1967 that said on record that by 1985, the average American would only work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. <laughs> only in France or Southeast Portland, but nowhere <laughs> else is that true. They thought the main problem in the future would be too much leisure. But since 1973, leisure time has decreased 37% in America. 
That's a, that's a whole lot. Now, over the same time period, you see the death of the Sabbath in American culture, starting in 1969. That's kind of a Harbinger year with 7-Eleven, the first chain store opened seven days a week. That was a brand new thing. My dad still tells me stories about when 7-Eleven was brand new. I can't, my dad tells me lots of stories, and I don't believe most of them, but <laughs> I, can you even imagine a world, and maybe some of you are old enough here tonight to remember it, can you imagine a world where once a week, every Sunday, you woke up and the city was shut down? The whole city, it was like a snow day, but like with no internet access. The whole city shut down and the one and only thing open was the church. And that rhythm, not only for the people of God, but for the people of Portland and America. Can you even, I cannot even fathom a world where that is in the clay, is the case. Now, all of this, of course, reached a climax in 2007 with the release of... Yep, the iPhone. The iPhone or the smartphone has literally changed what it means to be a human in one decade. Now we all carry infinity around in our back pocket, which is just a bit much. A recent study, I think I used this recently, found that the average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day over 76 sessions for a total of two and a half hours. Another study I read that was just done on young adults put the number at 85 sessions a day over five hours. And in every study I read, most people surveyed had no idea how much time they actually lost to their phones. Psychologists have made the point that the vast majority of Americans' relationships to their phones falls under the category, in psychology speak, of compulsion. We have to check that last text. We have to click on Twitter. We have to open our email. If not full-on addiction, here's a standard definition on a, of addiction from a textbook. Addiction is the relentless pull to a substance or an activity that becomes so compulsive it ultimately interferes with everyday life. Can I tell you how often in pastoral counseling I'm dealing with a husband or a wife and the key issue has to do with a phone and constant distraction? By that definition right there, nearly everyone I know is addicted in some measure to their phone or at least to the internet. Now, if you don't think you're an addict, great, prove it. Turn off your phone for 24 hours and see if by the next morning you're not like writhing on the floor with your teeth chattering <laughs> or something like Instagram or whatever, you know? Great, prove it to me. Now, all that to agree or disagree, not to get on my hobby horse there, all that to say, something is deeply wrong in our culture. Psycho thank you. Psychologists and mental health professionals are now talking about hurry sickness. It's like a full-on new thing. I, I sent this, the notes for my teaching out, and one of, one of our staff said, can I get a sick day for that? Is that like paid vacation time? What? <laughs> no. But it's a thing. Here's the definition. A behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. Psychology Today defines it as a malaise, malaise in which a person feels chronically short on time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Philip Zimbardo, a PhD psychologist, author of a, a well-known book, he has three symptoms of hurry sickness. Listen to this. Are you ready? One, you move from one checkout line to another because it's shorter. <laughs> Two, when you come to a stoplight, you count the cars ahead of you and change lanes. Anybody? You know it, you know who you are. And wait, you're like, this, this is not normal? Yeah. Three, you multitask to the point that you forget one of the tasks. 
Now, not to play armchair psychologist, but I'm pretty sure you all have hurry sickness, all of you and myself included. And on a serious note, hurry is a form of violence to the soul. And none of us are immune. Um, Yesterday I was reading, on my Sabbath, I was reading uh, Ruth Haley Barton. I've been reading through all of her work over the last month and it's just fantastic. And I came across this thing I wanna read to you in a minute. The night before, we start our Sabbath on Friday night. And I had a great week, but it was really, uh, I can't say busy, because I'm teaching on busyness. It was really full. <laughs> and I was you know, really looking forward to a teaching on slowing down, but my week was just kind of jam-packed, and it's Christmas and shopping, and a really good friend was in town, and Rogue One had to go see that a lot of times. And um, <laughs> all of that, And uh, so I get to my Sabbath Friday night and we power down and kind of sit around the table and I am just like ramped up and I'm grouchy, I'm irritable, I'm on edge. We have dinner, I like, I'm short with my kids and then my wife and I get into an emotional conversation, also known as a fight. And um, (laughs) those of you that have been married for any length of time, we've been married for 15 years, we have the exact same fight in a thousand different shapes and sizes, it's the same thing. Over this year we were fighting about, you know, Christmas cookies, but it doesn't matter what it's about. It's the same, the same fight over and over and over again and we're just, we have yet to grow up and mature. And um, I'm always at fault. And it was really interesting, you know, we get through and we make up and we have a, a really healthy, we're, we're doing really well right now. But I wake up the next morning and I'm like, man, that was just lame. I wonder why I'm so on edge. I don't feel like it's my Sabbath, but I don't feel at peace, you know? And then I read this. This is her 10 signs that you're moving too fast through life. Next slide. Irritability, hype, meaning like you're on edge, you like lose your temper way too easy. Hypersensitivity, so you get mad or hurt your feelings way too easy. Restlessness, meaning when you actually do stop to rest, you can't relax, like you can't fall asleep or you can't like settle in or you fidget or you have to play with your phone or whatever. Compulsive overworking, you just keep working. Numbness, meaning like you don't have the emotional capacity for like empathy for somebody else. Escapist behaviors, you're just binge watching Netflix or alcohol or social media or whatever your thing is. Disconnected from our identity and calling. Not able to attend to human needs like sleeping eight hours a night and exercise every day and eating healthy and drinking water. Hoarding energy and slippage in spiritual practices where the spiritual disciplines just start to become less and less frequent. How you doing out there? You're like, like, I'm seven for 10. (laughs) Well done. How many of you read that, you're like, dang, that's just my life, yeah. What does that say exactly about you or about me? So here's what I'm getting to. My point is we have a problem, time, and the solution is not more time. On a regular basis, I find myself saying to a friend or a family member, I just wish I had like 10 more hours in the day. Do you ever say that? That would not solve the problem. All I would, if like miracle, whatever, here's 10 more hours in a day, sci-fi, like thing, I would just fill up those 10 hours with the exact same stuff and I would end up even more tired than I am now. The solution is not more time. The solution is to slow down and simplify our life around the essentials of apprenticeship to Jesus. 
You have all sorts of secular writers like Greg McCown and his book Essentialism and others writing about this idea, but it's what followers of Jesus have been saying for millennia, if not more. Our defining narrative arc from Genesis 1, a story that goes back thousands upon thousands of years, is that to be made human is to be made one in the image of God and two from the dust of the earth. Image of God means that we are latent with potential. You are a king, you are a queen created by the creator to rule over the world. But from the dust means that you are human. You are finite, not infinite. You are mortal, not immortal. You're made out of the ground and we live in that tension. And one of the key tasks of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live into both your potential and your limitations. Our culture only wants to talk about our potential and I'm all for that, but it's just as important, if not more so, to talk about our limitations. I used to get Portland Monthly, anybody in here? I love our city, I love to eat, drink, culture, all of that, but I finally just had to like cancel the subscription because it just left me feeling exhausted. Every month I would read it and be like, oh, there's a new restaurant I need to go to, and oh, Andy Warhol's at the art museum, I need to go down and see that, and oh, there's there's a beer food cart thing in January down, I need to go to see that too, and it's just nonstop. We live in a culture that wants to transgress all of our limitations, to cheat time itself, to read every book, watch every movie, see every site, travel to every country, eat at every restaurant, go to every bar, go to every concert, rise to the top of every field, YOLO! (laughs) Come on! No, that is not the, that is the defining narrative of seize the day of the West is not the defining narrative of a follower of Jesus that you're made in the image of God and you're from the dust. You are a human being. You have limitations. You're not God. You were never supposed to be. And one of the limitations that we all share is 24 hours in a day. Even if you work part-time and you're in high school and you don't have a lot, still, nobody here has more than 24 hours a day. We have to, in the language of Thoreau, live deliberately. I love that. Now, for those of you, and I know I'm not alone, I know there's a ton in the room tonight, say, man, I'm in, I want, it, I want that. I, I, I want to slow down. I want to take up the easy yoke of Jesus and slow down, but I need a little bit of help because life is just crazy. Well, here's a few ideas, some kind of nuts and bolts stuff. You have to figure out what works best for you based on your personality and season of life, but you don't start from a blank slate. We have two millennia now of time-tested practices from the way of Jesus. Here are five practices at the top of my list to slow your life down. The first, and I really would argue most important, is Sabbath. Like, I really think more and more this is just a key practice in our day and age more than ever before. Set aside one day a week just to be, not to do. Turn off your phone if you want, unplug from the internet, don't go into the office, sleep, read your Bible, pray, eat, hang out with family, friends, do whatever is life-giving for you. Whatever for you is a way to connect with God and people around you. And practicing Sabbath, you'll start to notice this. It's really hard at first, in particular if you're used to a go, go, go culture, but once you kind of get the hang of it, oh my gosh, the best day of the week. But practicing Sabbath does something to the other six days of the week. It's like it's a governor to kind of put a stop, put a cap on the speed of your life. Another idea is fixed hour prayer. So like many of you, I start my morning with um, a quiet time or whatever you wanna call it. For me, it's integral to emotional health and spiritual life. But then throughout the day, I just pause, and they're really not long, but once in the afternoon, and then once 
in the evening, either before I come home from work or right after I put my kids to bed. And I just pause just to breathe a little bit in and out, center my mind and my imagination on God and collect myself and just be myself with God. On a similar note um, is a fixed hour schedule, and this may or may not be your cup of tea based on how you know, spontaneous or in the moment you are, but this actually started in the monastery movement and then years later spread to the business world. It's where you schedule out an ideal week. So you take a blank piece of paper or an iCal or whatever, and you schedule out your ideal week, work, rest, exercise, spiritual disciplines, you know, Tuesday night with your Bridgetown community or whatever. You put it all on there, make sure your vision for your life and all of your values are in your weekly and monthly rhythm. And then, of course, you're open to interruption from people you love and care about and, of course, from God. But as a general rule, you stick to it. Stephen Covey of 90s Daytimer fame said that we achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned with our values. I love that. We achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned with our values. I'm pretty sure that Jesus would agree. Fourth um, is simple living, also known as minimalism in a secular society. Yes, for all of you haters, it is only for rich people, of course. Poor people don't call it simple living, they just call it living. But, (laughs) but, by the New Testament's definition of rich, pretty much every single one of you in here tonight, at least if you have a roof over your head, is rich. And yes, your parents' roof does count. So this is pretty much for all of us. And and this is an ancient practice of Jesus that goes all the way back, obviously, to the life of Jesus himself, but has been pretty much lost to the sands of time, at least in American church culture. The basic idea is to strip your whole life down to what really matters and to live, as Thoreau said, to live deliberately. You start with money and possessions, you go through your house or apartment or that room you rent, you get rid of all the clutter, all the extra stuff, clothing, you don't need 25 pairs of shoes, that DVD collection, you never, whatever, you just go through and you clean it all out and then you move on to your activities your Netflix habits, that hobby you're not really all that into, the book club you only go to every other time. Anyway, whatever the example is, you strip it down, you just get your life down to the core practices that really make for life to the full, and you embrace your limitations as well as your potential. And in doing so, you discover joy. You know, I cut um, TV out this fall, and it was just supposed to be for um, the fall until Rogue One, and, So no Netflix, no film, none of that. And it wasn't because I was like so great. It was because we started a morning gathering uh, early in the fall and that's like four or five hours extra to my schedule. And so I I had to pull four or five hours from somewhere and Netflix was like at the top of the queue. So I just cut it out and I thought, man, let me just get through the fall. But it was so life giving And I love film. I love Stranger Things. I love all of that. Thankfully, I got Stranger Things in before. I love it, and uh, so I'm into it. I love story, I love, you know, all that stuff. It has been so life-giving, and I'm not saying you need to do it, I'm just saying for me, I sleep better at night, I I wake up with God, I go to bed with God on my mind, I wake up with God on my mind. It has done wonders, not only for my emotional health, but for my spiritual life. Now, I'm not saying you need to do that, I'm saying just the simple act of, let's strip my life down, And just live with simplicity around what really matters is a huge way forward. And then finally is just, you know, kind of slowing down the overall pace of life. 
I'm always on the lookout, and my guess is I'm not alone, for little ways to slow myself down. So I, like I'm a rule person, I know nobody else is, but I am, whatever. And so I have little rules that I just play with for fun. So here's, I've made a little list of my like slow yourself down rules, just for you. This is just for the seven, all right? Here's my first one, drive the speed limit. Mm-hmm. Come to a full stop at a stop sign. You should try it sometime. It's crazy. Get into the slow lane. Mm-hmm. Show up 10 minutes early to an appointment and don't take out my phone. Yeah, you're like, you're like that, that can be done? Uh, it can. Um, walk slower. So I'm a walker and I, I love to do a lot of walking meetings. And uh, I started to notice this thing when I'll, I don't do as many this time of year because it's winter and it's freezing outside. But, um, but I'll go on a walk with somebody that is a mentor or somebody that I look up to. And I've started to notice there's a common denominator, like all sorts of this personality, that personality, this stage of life, that stage of life, and pretty much all the mature people I walk with, this is what our walk is like. It's like, yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, uh uh-huh. It's like, I just keep, they walk way slower than me. (laughs) And I don't think it's because they are lazy or lethargic or over 40. I I think (laughs) it's because they're a lot more like Jesus than I am. I imagine walking with Jesus and I just somehow don't imagine this. <laughs> like, I imagine like, imagine this, you know? And like the occasional, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And you're like, wait, what? I was on this walk with this, this writer that I really look up to. We were in San Francisco and he's just this great Jesus-y dude. And we, we had like, four hours or something, I don't know how long it was, like an afternoon together. We had nowhere to go, nowhere to be. I just wanted to hang out with this guy and talk about the way of Jesus. And so we decided, he's a walker too. So we went on this like super long walk and he would like stop every couple of blocks and like look at me and I'd be like, bro, we gotta go. (laughs) And then I'd be like, but where do we have to go to? We're just talking, there's not even anywhere to go to. But I'm just like, we can't stop, we need to keep walking. So anyway, that's, I, I digress. Um, walk slower. Get into the longest checkout line and not to like catch up on news on your phone. Just breathe in, breathe out. Talk to somebody, even if you're introverted like me. Single tasking, it's this thing from back in the 90s where you do one thing at a time. So like here's, here's a hypothetical scenario. You check your email and, and you, that's all you do. So you don't like tweet at the same time and text with your mom and watch a trailer for, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy and listen to the new Francis and the Light record. All the way, like you, you just do one thing at a time. Uh, start a journal, get your thoughts down on paper. Turn your smartphone into a dumb phone. Um, there's a great little article if you Google search distraction-free iPhone that has been really helpful for myself and a bunch of other people. Is there anybody have any other ideas? What do you guys do to slow down? Anything. Read. Oh, yes. I can't see who you are, but I like you already. (laughs) What else? Sleep. Not 11 hours a night, but (laughs) yes, that's great. What else? Stare at the stars. stars. You you live in California or something? (laughs) (laughs) Like we have those up here. That's great. I love it. Stare at the stars. What? Yes, let someone help you cook, like make a meal. 
from a plant or something, not from a <laughs> store. Wow, yes. What else? What? Talk slow, slowly, absolutely. What else? Turn off music. Turn off music. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, I do that sometimes. Write a letter with, watch it snow, yeah. And they're saying white Christmas for us, you guys. We'll see. We'll see. That's what they're saying as of two hours ago, yeah. What? Sit down while you eat. Yeah, I read this blog post on how you, sh- like, usually when I eat lunch, I watch a TED Talk or something, and they're basically like, don't do that. So I just tried, like, eating my lunch by myself. It was so boring. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I tried it, but it's really hard. Somebody last hour said, chew slower. And I, anybody read Michael Pollan's book, um, In Defense of Food? It's like my favorite food book ever. And he has this whole, like, that's like one of his main things, is you need to chew slower. And I tried it. It was so it was impossible. I'm like, that's... Not gonna happen. So my point here, there are all sorts of creative, I love your creativity, I love your imagination, well done. There are all sorts of creative ways to slow yourself down and wake yourself up to the life that is happening in the moment all around you right as we speak. Now what I'm getting at is essentially what ancient followers of Jesus would call a rule of life. At some point I really wanna teach on this. For now, uh, the basic idea is just a schedule and a set of practices you order your life around in order to follow Jesus in community. And if you're not a, a rules person, don't let that language of rule come off as legalistic or religious or lame. The word rule just comes from the Greek word for a trellis. Think of Jesus teaching on abiding in the vine. Then think of a vineyard in your mind's eye. Think of the trellis underneath the vine. A rule of life is the trellis. It's a structure, a way to structure your life around abiding so that you can bear, in the language of that metaphor, the fruit of love and joy and forbearance and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. All that to say, and here's the point I'm driving to, if the ideas of the last three months, I really think that we have covered some life-changing ideas, but if they don't make it into your schedule and into the practices that make up your life, you will never very, get very far in your transformation. But I'm well aware of the fact that, like my therapist said, the number one problem you will face is time. And I get it, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm no different. I'm living in the city, I, I'm working a job, I'm, I'm doing other stuff, I'm writing books, I'm raising a family, I have a spouse, I'm living in community. I get it, I get how hard this is. Easier said than done. And a bunch of you know my story, I hit a wall a few years ago, and uh, the way I'm wired, um, I'm type A, and not to sound crass, but I have this like, get crap done gear that I can just slip into where I just like, I'm on it and I just get so much stuff done. And at the same time, I'm basically an unhappy jerk. So I had to make a decision about the kind of life that I was going to lead, the kind of man that I was going to grow and mature into or not grow and not mature into. And I really believe that what we do matters. Most of you know my passion around you know, vocation and work. But I believe that the most important thing in life is who we become. And for me, I could not become, I realized in my own life, that I could not become the man Jesus was calling me to become in my discipleship to him, the husband, the father, the teacher, just the human being, and move at the same 
pace I was used to. So I've spent the last two years kind of behind the scenes in my own life working on slowing down. Honestly, that's like one of the main things I'm working on in my discipleship to Jesus. I've come a long ways, those of you that have known me for a few years, and I still have a very long ways to go. So I get it, I don't stand up here and say, I have this down, go on a walk with me. (laughs) No, that's not, I'm not there yet. Give me another decade, I'm en route. Slowly en route, slowly en route. But I do wanna say this, this is where the rubber meets the road. You all have to decide, just like me, every day when you wake up, we have to decide Will we continue at breakneck breakneck speed through life and just try to work in a little Jesus stuff along the way when we have time, when we can fit it in? Or will we radically alter the pace of our life, slow it down, orient our whole life as a student, mom, barista, whatever, psychologist, whatever you do, CEO, whatever you do, orient your whole life around the easy yoke of discipleship to Jesus. I can't make that decision for you. As we close down this vision series, which has been all about the call of Jesus to become an apprentice or a disciple, there's a fascinating little factoid, and we'll end here, that is really simple, but a lot of people miss. The word mathetes, which is the Greek word that is translated as disciple or apprentice, it's a noun, it's not a verb. It's used 268 times in the New Testament, every single time as a noun. But usually when people say it in the church today, at least in the US, it's as a verb. So regularly people ask me, John Mark, who are you discipling? Or who is discipling you? I'm a bit cheeky and immature, so I will say something like, nobody. Why? Because you can't disciple anybody. You are or you are not. You can't be discipled by anybody. If you wanna actually take New Testament language, you either are or you are not a disciple. Think about the language, swap out a synonym. John Mark, who are you Christianing? Uh, nobody. <laughs> Who's Christianing you? Uh, Jesus, I don't know. Um, you either are or you are not a Christian. John Mark, who are you believering? <laughs> Who's believering? Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know, you either are or you are not a believer in Jesus. John Mark, who are you followering? I mean like on Twitter, or what do you mean exactly? <laughs> Who's followering you? Like, no, you either are or you are not. Fo- you, you know, you're like, I got the point the first time. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, why does this matter? Listen, I'm, I'm going somewhere. Here's why. If you think of disciple or apprentice as a verb, as something that is done to you, it puts the onus of responsibility for you to follow Jesus and be transformed into his image on who? on somebody else, on your mom or your dad or your mentor or your pastor or your teacher or your Bridgetown community leader or your professor or your whatever. And that's not all wrong. I have a responsibility as your pastor. I have a huge responsibility as a father. But I will have people from another church come up to me bitter and say, nobody ever discipled me. What they mean is nobody ever transformed me into the image of Jesus. But if you think of it as a noun, as something that you are, an identity, a label, the right kind of label. It puts the onus of responsibility for you to follow Jesus and be transformed into his image on who? On you, 
Not in an individualistic sense. You still need community. You still need a mom, a dad, and the faith, and the family of God. Absolutely. Hopefully you get my point. All I'm saying here is you have to decide if you want to follow Jesus. I can't decide for you. Nobody, I can't make you into the image of Jesus. I can offer a roadmap for the way. Say, here, I'm on this way. A whole bunch of other people to your right or your left are practicing this way. A whole bunch of other people who've gone before us for millennia are really smart and really amazing, have been on this. Here's the way of Jesus. Come on, that's all I can do. The end of the day, there's Jesus, the rabbi, but more than that, the Messiah, but more than that, the Hebrew prophet, but more than that, the Lord of all the universe. And his invitation to you is come, become my mathetes, become my disciple, become my apprentice. Take up your cross, like we said last week, yeah, there's self-denial there in an age of self-fulfillment. But what you'll find when you take up that cross is it's not heavy. It's an easy yoke. It's an invitation to an unhurried life where you tuck in shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. You wake up and life is hard and it's messy and there's no utopia this side of resurrection. But you wake up and you join with God's song over creation. It is very good. Let's stand and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.